take a listen to this again. I want to do something with it. I don't know anything else except that it should, it should sound like, you know, a cry, but it's sort of a good way or something. Hello friends, welcome back to the Salon Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee, joined as always by Jason Brewer, aka Honolulu Brew Brew. I'm down and I'm here. Guess what? We're getting a Mai Tai tonight, everybody. I feel like that is a an intense possibility. <laughs> Alright, this is a good time for us to talk about some news. So, starting off with some more somber news. I hate starting off with somber news, but it's more important than all this other stuff. But um, Brian Wilson had to cancel the next portion of his summer tour. Total drag. Um, And he released an official statement, and it reads as follows. Dear friends, it is with great regret that I need to postpone my upcoming June tour. It is no secret that I have been living with mental illness for many decades. There were times when it was unbearable. But with doctors and medications, I have been able to live a wonderful, healthy, and productive life with support from my family, friends, and fans who have helped me through this journey. As you may know, in the last year or so, I've had three surgeries on my back. The surgeries were successful, and I'm physically stronger than I've been in a long time. However, after my last surgery, I started feeling strange, and it's been pretty scary for a while. I was not feeling like myself. Mentally insecure is how I describe it. We're not sure what is causing it, but I do know that it's not good for me to be on the road right now, so I'm headed back to Los Angeles. I had every intention to do these shows and was excited to get back to performing. I've been in the studio recording and rehearsing with my band and have been feeling better, but then it crept back, and I've been struggling with stuff in my head and saying things I don't mean, and I don't know why. It's something I've never dealt with before, and we can't quite figure it out just yet. I'm going to rest, recover, and work with my doctors on this. I'm looking forward to my recovery and seeing everyone later in the year. The music and my fans keep me going, and I know this will be something I can again overcome. Love and mercy, Brian. And then uh, Mike Love released a a really sweet statement as well. Um, Says, Today I read a message shared by my cousin Brian. My heart is swollen with love, compassion, concern, and thoughtful well wishes for a speedy recovery. Brian, you have fought bravely your battle with mental illness. I have no doubts that you will triumph and move gracefully past this speed bump. Let the music that lives deeply inside you carry you to your highest beautiful self. I will carry you in music every night we perform. I am cheering for you. I love you, cuz, and I hope and pray to see you soon. Peace and love. Cousin Mike. So some serious stuff, and, uh, you know, obviously we've dealt with this before with Brian um, in many ways over the years, but it's always sad uh, to hear Brian struggle and 
he's got a great support team, a great family. And I really do hope that whatever he does from here on out is, is in his best interests and, and hopefully he can get better soon and not rush himself to get back out on the road. I know he has a big tour coming up with the zombies. Um, and man, I really hope that he can do that because it's really special and, and a lot of people are going to, are going to really, um, be healed by that music and that experience. So hopefully he can be, be part of that and be ready for that. But, um, and number one concern is always his health and his well-being and and you know that's you know it's it it's really difficult to to talk about for me i i i care so much about brian and i care so much about the music and i uh, really hope that um really hope he gets the help that he needs yeah, that statement from Mike was really seemed really heartfelt. You know, I mean, sometimes when he'll respond to things about Brian in public, it's kind of a little corporate sounding. But that was, I don't know, that didn't seem pandering at all. And uh, I, I remember when I read Mike's statement, I was like pretty moved by it, uh, just to be honest. And obviously feeling bad and praying for Brian and just hoping that, uh, you know, things will will hit on the upside and you know what if they don't hit the upside i also just pray that all the people around him are going to do the best thing for him that's all we can do um so yeah uh yeah love and mercy to brian and his family as they go through this and we'll keep you guys updated obviously and uh hopefully They'll be back out on the road, and Brian will be feeling wonderful again, and we'll be excited about these shows with his buddies, the Zombies. So speaking of Mike Love, there is a new Mike Love album coming out this summer called The Twelve Sides of Summer, and he released the first single from the album. It's a cover of the Ramones song, Rockaway Beach. Chewing out a rhythm on my bubble gum The sun is out and I want some It's not hard, not far to reach We can hit your ride to Rockaway Beach Rock, rock, Rockaway Beach Rock, rock, Rockaway Beach Rock, rock, Rockaway Beach We can hit your ride to Rockaway Beach I was pretty thrilled that he actually tried something a little different and, um, you know, instead of just kind of redoing Beach Boys songs. And this, the track listing is, is pretty encouraging for this record. He's doing, uh, like, The Girl from Infinima, Here Comes the Sun, um, over and over and over again. It's it's a pretty interesting track list. He is doing some um, some Beach Boys songs, Servant Safari, Surfing, It's Okay, this, this single he released with Hanson, and uh, Keeping the Summer Alive. But um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. I was I was pretty excited about Rockaway Beach. You know, is it something I'm going to listen to a lot? No, probably not. I'd rather listen to the Ramones do it. But it's cool. I mean, I think it sounds better than a lot of the stuff he's done in the past few years. So I'm excited about it. How you feel, Jay? Uh, I don't know. I, I enjoyed the Rockaway Beach thing. Is pretty cool. Like. I kind of poked fun at it at first, but it was cool, you know. Um, I dug that it was, like, not overly polished, and it just seemed like they were jamming in a room almost, yeah. to, in a yeah. way. And the props, to, uh, props to Scott Totten, 
who produced that track. And the back vo- backing vocals on it actually sound super cool. Um, I mean, it all sounds good. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I like that he's doing something different. I kind of wish that he would not do the Beach Boys tunes on there, but I guess that's just what's expected of him, I guess, at this point. Uh, but... I don't know. We'll see. I was not on the Unleash the Love or the new It's Okay train, so maybe this will change my mind. Maybe hearing him do a really strange version of Girl from Ipanema will reel me in, because I love that song. So, um, well, and, doing the, and doing the ABBA thing again, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love I love his cover of, of the ABBA song on and on and on on um, his first solo album, but it's strange that he's redoing it again. So, I mean... Whatever. Well, I told Wyatt I'd, if he's going to redo stuff from the past, I'd love to hear a redo of Looking Back with Love because that's one of my favorite Mike Love jams, people. You can just deal with it. It's great. I'm, I'm so in. I love Looking Back with Love. And, it's, uh, it's super, it's super yeah. cool. If he, he should do like a little solo tour and then do like Looking Back with Love and... Yeah, and, uh, even a, even a Mike, right, a Mike Love acoustic tour where he still does the hits and then does some really random stuff, playing like the city winery circuit. I'd go see. I'd 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 be I'd be front row. He could do a double bill with Al, so it'd be Al and his son and Mike and his son. It could be the Beach Boys and Sons tour. Come on, this is mar- marketing one hundred and one. <laughs> if you're listening out there, uh, team of hive mind promoters let's let's make this happen let's make those guys a little more money mike love mike and al and the beach boys california sons hey that's that's i'm telling you that's it right right there we're gonna work on it we're gonna we're gonna put some feelers out there we'll get Get them on the we'll we'll get paul runyon on it (laughs) (laughs) all right uh what else is there to say about that it's coming out on um july 19th so we'll talk about it some more i'm sure we'll uh we'll jam it this summer and see what we think hopefully you guys will jam it too speaking of this summer we have a summer tour coming up we are playing all over the east coast if you're interested it's uh sailonsounds.com for our tour dates so many uh we are also uh, working on a little live record right now. So that'll be coming out soon. Watch, watch out. So stay tuned, everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, let's get into some emails. Trying to work through all these wonderful emails you guys are sending me, and I really appreciate it. Um, the first one is from Jenny in Australia. Hi, Jason. Wyatt, Jenny from Melbourne here. Love your podcast. So great to hear fellow Beach Boys nerds on all these topics. I particularly loved the episode on Phil Spector. It was cool to hear about the influences of Spector on Brian. Brian outstripped Spector at around the Pet Sounds era. Also, I didn't know about the link between Be My Baby and Don't Worry Baby, which is my favorite Beach Boys song. So glad Ronnie Spector was eventually able to record a beautiful version of that song. Agreed. Also, hearing John Stebbins call up at the beginning of the pod reminded me of a quote from him regarding Brian's modern day touring. Something about Brian being forced to tour kind of against his wishes and being reminded by his handlers that he actually loves touring. The quote is, 
Working in the studio and especially touring is not really his choice. His handlers, managers, and wife insist that he work. It's all a bit Landy-like when you look behind the curtain. I found the quote on Wikipedia, so not 100% sure of its accuracy, but what do you guys think? Is Brian being exploited? It kind of seems like he doesn't enjoy performing and is terrified of it. Anyway, thanks again for the awesome pod. Hope to see you guys if you come to perform Australia one day. Dig it. Uh, Well, yeah, that was a quote from the Beach Boys FAQ, which Jason and I both read. Um, And I'll read a little bit more of the passage. And keep in mind, this was written in 2011. His solo career has been inconsistent, some of it quite good, some of it embarrassing, and how much of it is really Brian? Again, it depends on whom you ask and how freely they are speaking when you do. His band and his collaborators in the studio do an awesome job of dialing in a Brian Wilson-esque sound, and they always defer to Brian should he come through with a kernel of creativity. I've been told by multiple sources as close to Brian that you can get that he really doesn't want to be there. Working in the studio and especially touring is not really his choice. His handlers, managers, and wife insist that he work. It's all a bit Landy-like when you look behind the curtain. Brian Wilson himself has claimed that going on stage is the worst part of touring. He doesn't mind the travel. Airplanes are scary. Hotels can be stressful. But going on stage in front of people is the ultimate nightmare. And then there are the good nights when he's happy to perform and he actually accepts the adulation from his adoring audience. And even if Brian would rather stay home, is that really what's best for him? What is the alternative to having yet another regime in place that controls Brian's agenda? If he is fully independent, does he revert to the guy face down having seizures from an OD on Venice Beach? Is he back to 300 pounds and near death? Anyway you slice it, Brian has beaten his life expectancy. His semi-helplessness and troubled core has given him wave after wave of people trying to help him. And at times they have and at times they have become a source of problems instead of a solution to eliminate them so that's a quote there i'm getting a little choked up sorry guys um it's it's tough man like that's a tough topic and i put this email in here because yeah we are kind of talking about that today and um trying to be as respectful as i can but this is a quote from john stebbins book so i feel like um he could maybe answer to this better than we can um and we've talked with john before and he's a great author and um, one of my favorite, but it is tough for me to read that. And, um, because if it's true, that's horrible. And, um, you know, there's no way to really, to really know unless Brian comes out and says it himself, or if, if someone close to him, you know, says, Hey, look, I can't do this anymore. This is not, this is not what I signed up for. But, um, you know, like I've said before, we know the guys in Brian's band and, uh, and Jason knows knows guys that are close to Brian, um, uh, like Andy Paley and 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 such, um, Mark Lynette, and people that you know. I feel like I would trust um, to handle the situation in the right way. Um, when you say Jason, it's easy to look at the situation and look at the guy's history and say, "Oh, they're just making him do this." I feel like they probably encourage him to do things and be productive because it's, you know, when you're, when you struggle with tough stuff in your life, you struggle with mental illness or even just anxiety or whatever you want to call it, being busy, being productive. I mean, look for myself, I, you know, if I struggle with things that I'm worried about or whatever, 
if I get busy like playing in our band or making a new record or working on a project or doing something like that, it immediately alleviates my problems and helps me realize, you know what, I have a bigger purpose than, you know, than the things I'm worried about. So I think if you're a friend or you work with or a family member of a legend like that, you're going to encourage them to be productive as and you know as long as they're viable as long as they're able to do it that's how i look at it plus i mean just it's just to think about this i mean he's still a name he's still a recognizable entity that people want to go see and they probably people in his family even when he doesn't want to do it people in his family probably recognize you know what brian when you go out there and the people are cheering for you it's going to remind you of how great you are. And I mean, if you think about Brian's history going all the way back to when he was a kid with his dad, there was always a part of him that was competitive. There was always a part of him that wanted to, to be a winner. I mean, I just feel like that was the thing with him and his brothers and in, in even more demonstratively pronounced in like Mike love. So I feel like it's a family thing. So in a way, I'm sure that's carried down into generations with his kids and stuff like that, too. So I guess I, all that long-winded to say, it just doesn't seem like that many people involved in his life, including his own children, would be cool with that. You know what I mean? I do. And I, so I'd say there's probably lots of reluctance and there's just lots of you know people who love him and care about him saying, hey, Brian, you know. Let's, you know, this will be good. And the thing is, I've seen up close the way those guys in that band interact with him, and it is an amazing thing. And they're having fun together, and they're doing stuff. And there's been countless interviews, candid interviews, like the stuff that we're going to see in that movie coming out, that Long Promised Road movie, that I feel is going to be a really true, clearer picture for the fans out there. And just to be honest with you, and I'll get off my soapbox after this, just to be honest with you, as fans, at some point, we've got to stop speculating and caring about this stuff. I'll just be honest with you. Let's just enjoy the music that's going on. Let's pray for the guy that if he's, if he's dealing with something and he's coming out public about it. But at the end of the day, if he's out there touring and making money and doing things for his family and doing things his family wants him to do, is it really any of our business other than to just to support the guy? I, I don't think so. Well, Jenny, I hope we elaborated a little bit on that topic enough for you. Um, I always want to err on the side of being respectful to Brian and his family, um, but I also want to try and, you know, give my opinion and be transparent with you guys. So Jason and I pretty much uh, feel the same way. Certainly. Um, so thank you for listening to the show. Up next, we have an email from Pete Berry. Hey guys, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing with this podcast. One of my favorite things you guys do is open wide the doors for everyone to share their story. I never get tired of hearing how someone fell hard and flipped their lid for the Beach Boys. Here's my short story. In high school, when most kids were developing their taste in music and finding their musical identity, 
I felt totally adrift. I just couldn't get into anything with any real enthusiasm and would often pose as a fan of punk or metal just to fit in with my friends. Total poser. The only music I seemed to connect with was my dad's jams. His favorites were Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, the Carpenters, Gary Nielsen, and the yes. Beach Boys. Yes. Is this Jason Brewer? <laughs> it is. Uh, I love the music he played, but wouldn't be caught dead humming We've Only Just Begun when everyone else at school was freaking out about Smells Like Team Spirit. Well, while my friends were reveling in the angst and stick it to the man type songs, I just couldn't relate. I didn't have that rebellious spirit. I was just happy and then every now and then sometimes very sad. I shoved my musical interests deep down until I had convinced myself that the music just wasn't for me. My love for sweet melodies and sunny pop would just have to fade away with the rest of my childhood. It was time to grow up and be a man. Cut to my early 20s. I had just moved to LA to get into film. I had left all my friends behind in Seattle. I didn't know a single person in town and had a couple hundred bucks to my name. I inherited a car from a family friend, but it only had a tape deck. As I drove around the city looking for a day job during the sweltering hot summer day, I randomly found in the door of the car a couple of tapes. It was the Beach Boys all summer long, today and Pet Sounds albums. Dude! What? What? Come on, now <clears throat> I popped in all summer long because I recognized I Get Around, which made me think of the TV movie Flight of the Navigator more than anything else. That's and funny. in that afternoon, my musical world was blown open. I spent the rest of the day driving around L.A. listening to all three tapes. I got chills right now, Pete. Thank yeah. you very much for this story. This is so good. Yeah, um, is this a movie you're writing? <laughs> um, and then I listened to them again and again. I, get, I kept listening to them until I found myself parked up on Mulholland Drive, looking out over the city at night. The music hit me so deeply. I remember hearing That's Not Me and being stunned at just how much it described my exact experience moving to L.A. Listening to Sloop John B. and wanting to go home, crying at the chorus of I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, finding resolve and I Know There's An Answer, realizing I was right where I was supposed to be, needing to find those answers by myself. Where had this music been all my life? Why had no one ever told me? I ended up staying in L.A. for 10 years. I had some of the most amazing experiences of my life and met some of the most amazing people. But the greatest friend I made during my time in Los Angeles was the Beach Boys. How appropriate that they found me in that place, in that city. Some of my best memories were going down to Amoeba each week and using my tip money to buy another album, saving up the Good Vibrations box set, my mind being blown by the post-Pet Sounds era, falling in love with friends, using Sunflower to cool me down when the AC went out in my car trying to find the radiant radish from the cross streets and help is on the way honking down the highway to love you seeing the beach boys at the bowl for their 50th seeing brian at the greek play pet sounds in 2012 soundtracking every summer get together with the party album marveling at carl's blue jumpsuit in the video of them singing that same song oh lord and finally playing dennis's the river song as i left la for good and headed back up to the northwest with my wife and kids Anyway, thanks for what you're doing, giving all of us a community to share our love for the music. I love the fair and balanced perspective you bring to people like Mike and even Murray. Everyone gets a fair shake in the podcast and no one's left out in the story of the Beach Boys. That being said, I do believe there is something truly special about Brian, and I love that we live in a world where Pet Sounds exists. For a time, it was truly my closest friend. Keep up the good work and keep sailing on, sailors. Pete Berry.
Well, Pete, what an amazing email. It really did sound like you were carving out a movie script for us. Um, you should you should think on that, you know? It's, it's a good starting place. Um, Sail on Sailors, the story of Pete Berry. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but truly, you, 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 you getting a car from someone and it just happens to have those tapes in it is kind of like... And you're in LA. It's pretty, pretty special. So, and I can relate, you know, I remember, I mean, I think I talk about this all the time. I remember when I was a kid having like the endless summer on a copied cassette from a vinyl record from a neighbor in a stack of Beatles tapes that he gave me was kind of like a golden find, you know, and I would blast it out of my, my little jam box. Like you wouldn't believe, um, you know, and a funny memory kind of related to that is I remember hearing those songs because I grew up at the beach. I grew up in South Carolina on the East Coast, and I used to hear those songs coming out of ice cream shops and surf shops um, all the time. So it was always really cool to be kind of surrounded by that music just because of my ge geography. So, um, yeah, Pete, I can relate, and it's amazing that's a great story. I really don't have much to add because I'm kind of blown away by your story. It's great. Great email. <clears throat> you should write a, uh, a memoir uh, about all this stuff. If nothing else, just write it for us because we like it. But um, thank you for listening. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, we have a quick message here from our buddy Mike Wojo. He says, Dear Jason and Wyatt, could you discuss the technical live aspect of the sail-on show? I don't see any amps on stage. Pedals, yes. Monitors in your ears. But how are you guys wired for sound? Listeners want to know. Thank you. Mike Wojo. Well, Mike, this is a, it's a lengthy kind of nerdy discussion we could have. And I think um, we will talk about it. We'll probably do it as a bonus episode and then probably post some of it on the main feed. But I think we can make a whole episode about it, and I think it would be interesting for a lot of people. So um, maybe not for everybody, but we'll definitely work on that. We're going on tour tomorrow, so I'm going to have my recorder with me, maybe do some um, live on the stage interviews, try and figure out a way to make this interesting. But... So uh, I can tell you this, though. I can cut to the chase and ruin the episode. Mike, Spoilers, spoilers. Spoiler alert. Mike Wojo, we're just lip syncing. It's all fake. We pop in the 1978 Australia show. Yeah, that's right. And just let it roll. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, thanks, Mike. Uh, look forward to that in the future, hopefully. So uh, hopefully answer your question. Behind the, the music. Um, but yeah, so we'll probably post that on our Patreon page. So if you're interested in supporting the show um, and getting all the bonus episodes, we do two episodes a month, and you can check that out at patreon.com slash sale on. One more email from John. Hey guys, a friend of mine told me about Sail On, and I'm glad he did, enjoying it immensely. My Beach Boys cred. First show was April 19th, 1974 at St. John Arena on the OSU campus in Columbus, Ohio. The opening act was Steely Dan, believe it or not. 
Wow. I have an older sister who saw the Beatles in Cleveland when they first came to the U.S., and my early familiarity with pop rock music was her collection. She had, among other albums, the Beach Boys concert, so that was my point of reference. In the 1976 NBC special, Van Dyke Parks talks about how hipsters completely dismissed the Beach Boys in the late 60s. They had tennies on and striped shirts. I was completely blown away by this show with 10 or 12 long-haired, bearded guys on stage playing and seeing all of this cool stuff with an occasional oldie thrown in. Of course, Endless Summer changed all of that. That summer, I saw them twice in one day at the Ohio State Fair, August 29, 1974. If you're curious about what they played, here's the set list. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty standard set list of the time. It's pretty awesome, though. They do a lot of stuff from their recent albums. Um, they do like Sail on Sailor, A Long Promised Road, Feel Flows, All This Is That, Marcella, California Saga. I want to be um, at that show. <clears throat> it's pretty rad. Uh, Ricky Vitar was still with them. Many, many shows after that and many highlights. Here are a few. World Series of Rock at Municipal Stadium, Cleveland, June 23rd, 1974, The Beach Boys, Joe Walsh and Barnstorm, Leonard Skinner and Ario Speedwagon. What a lineup. That's wild. Yeah, that uh, and then crazy. May 31st, 1975, The Beach Boys in Chicago. That was a big tour. And then along with your new pen pal, Tim Gallagher, I saw Mike Love and Celebration in concert at a park in Dearborn, Michigan. Coincidental with the release of the film Almost Summer. You can cover that on an upcoming podcast. Oh, we will, John. Along the way, I have met the Beach Boys as well as Jan and Dean, corresponded with Tony Asher, played in a college air band Beach Boy tribute, read, read all of the books, bought and listened to, and wore out the grooves on vinyl versions of every album as well as side projects. But I forget certain songs or fail to adequately appreciate them. Ceylon is helping me. I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and will try to see you guys play. John Rokicki, my favorite song is You Still Believe in Me. Yes. Well, John, it's a good thing that you're here with us today because that's what we're going to talk about. But I want to address your email first. Thank you for writing. Those are some awesome shows. Um, one of our favorite eras of the Beach Boys, 73, 74. And uh, you definitely uh, fit the bill of a Beach Boys freak like us. I mean, I just was going to add that I'm super jealous of your concert experiences i wish i could time travel and go to those shows and also dig that you live in charleston the coolest city on the east coast so um yeah i mean what more is there to say the set list speaks for itself you're way cooler than me <laughs> <laughs> i have a feeling that we'll be in charleston again in the next year so yeah Next year for sure. Yeah, we'll hopefully get to see you. Sneak sneak on down to Tybee Island. Oh yeah, we're playing Tybee Island um, Friday, so it'll be <laughs> maybe tomorrow when you hear this. Short um, notice, bro. Thanks again, John. Really great. Thank you everybody for listening and writing us. You can write me an email at sailonpodcast at gmail.com or you can send us a voicemail if you like that sort of thing at 615-606-3887. We'll have some voicemails for you guys next week. We just have so many more emails to get through. Um, so thanks for bearing with us and being patient. And thank you for the support. We love you. All right. So last time we talked about a song called Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys on this album called Pet Sounds. And we are working our way through this glorious album. Every song is so special and deserves all the attention. So today we're talking about track two. 
called You Still Believe in Me. Brian Wilson brought this in to Western Studios with the Wrecking Crew way back in October 1965. So we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about Beach Boys Party and all that because uh, Brian was already starting to work on new tunes and experimenting with songs that he hadn't even written lyrics for or hadn't finished. So let's go inside the tracking session. On October 14th, 1965, at 2 p.m., Western Recorders, Studio 3, engineered by Chuck Britz. Hey, I'll, I'll show you where it comes in. He goes, Yeah, okay. Don't forget to do that. Because uh, uh, that reminds us that it's a childhood song. So you'll notice that there is a bike horn and a bike bell used as percussion on this track and that's because it was originally meant to be a song called in my childhood i never really thought it was that weird i just you know i mean brian did all kinds of weird stuff on tracks and i thought it was just him being weird in 60s i thought thought the same thing i thought like oh man that's cool he used i mean it was weird at the time to use sleigh bells on a song i mean you know it's like right he did a lot of weird things you know slide whistle and just stuff that you know would just seem out of place on a pop rock record of the time right um brian's describing the bike horn rhythm to hal trying to get him to do it how he wants in the rhythmic fashion but uh the track is really driven by the circulating 12 string guitars played by barney kessel and glenn campbell barney kessel again playing the mando guitar hybrid 12 string that he did on uh wouldn't it be nice i gotta get one really really cool sound yeah do they make those it's a little different, I think, than what he had, but Eastwood makes one. It's called a Mando Caster. I actually, it's funny, total aside, but we talked about it last time and we're talking about it again. I used to sell guitars and uh, they have they have them, Eastwood guitars. So there you go. Free advertising, Eastwood. Send me one. Eastwood, I know you're listening right now. <laughs> um, let's uh, go ahead and get a few of those Mando guitars over here. <clears throat> it's a 12-string Mando caster. Yeah, let's get it going. We need one or two. Um, Definitely. So yeah, the first the, the first guitar part is as follows. And the second part goes like this. So they're similar but different. And then when you put them together, it's a really cool sort of almost like music box effect. Mm -hmm. 
So that drives the song along with the pulsating harpsichord and grand piano by Al Delory and Steve Douglas. And then, of course, uh, Hal Blaine with the finger cymbals, and then later accentuated by the timpani hits by Julius Wechter. It's like the, I, I write out on the paper, Pachinka Jukalaya, Waka Waka. Can you do that? Waka Waka is a real good beat. The bass is played by Carol Kay and Lyle Ritz, Fender and Upright Bass, respectively. The clarinets take over for the guitars on the pre-chorus. Jim Horn, Plaz Johnson, Bill Green, and Jay Migliori. So these are all guys that are staples in the Wrecking Crew. And if you haven't already, you should check out our Wrecking Crew episode. These guys are just legendary, and they played on thousands and thousands of tracks. It's just crazy. Building up to the ending of the song is a cool uh, retard kind of kept together by a heartbeat played on the bass octaves. It's very imminent and ominous, but it's followed by the childlike sounds of the bicorn and bell. Really strange duality in this song, the very circular and somewhat predictable verses leading into the strange, stark chorus sections. Just on the da da da, you know. So you've got a very kind of poppy, upbeat melody and feel to um, the song, but there are a few like naughty chords, as George Harrison would say, um, and some really interesting bass movement. Again, like this whole album, Brian just uh, was really pushing forward the ideas of. Uh, bass part melodies and basses um, playing different things and playing in different keys and playing really un- unexpected notes. And my favorite part of this whole song as far as the bass part is how going into the chorus, the band and the basses are playing a C-sharp minor chord and the bass stays on a C-sharp while the rest of the band goes to a B chord, which is the tonic. And it's a really strange, eerie, kind of unsettling feel. Um, You know, it's something that you never hear anyone do, like especially that specific movement from two to one where the bass stays on the two. It's just not done in pop music. If you listen to it, it does have a weird unsettling quality to it. And the bass, um, Mike's bass part and the vocals, which we'll get to in a bit, stays on the two as well, while the entire 
rest of the harmony block is just singing the one chord. So sorry if I get a little bit nerdy there, but I think it's such a really cool movement and something that when I was growing up and didn't understand music theory, it always seemed strange and ominous and I could never really figure out what that chord was, like how that chord served a purpose. And um, then the end of the, the chorus resolves kind of on an E minor over G, which is a really kind of, a really kind of sad chord. And uh, the vocals are all singing in unison over it. So it's a really strange, strange chorus for a song that otherwise is very upbeat and poppy. Um, do you want to talk about the track? So this track has always been one of my favorites because... You brought up the 12 strings, and I love that, you know. I think that's an unbelievable part of the track. I'm always drawn to that harpsichord. I really want to know, if anyone knows out there, what type of harpsichord, because I know there's a lot of different versions of that instrument, and uh, I'm always intrigued because it's such a cool sound. Um, But, I mean, this song, you know, doesn't really have like a drum kit on it per se. It's you know, got more of a percussion thing and, and it's got this very flowing and ebbing, like you're talking about with the bass kind of provides almost that heartbeat, like you were saying, I don't know, this is a, I mean, and, and it's this way on this whole record. I mean, there's so many different things putting the sound together on this song. I think the main thing that I always, again, like I was saying, was drawn to this song was the real prominent harpsichord and and I think about the players that would play that. The way it's played is very difficult to stay on beat the way that's played. Um, and I'm always just massively impressed by that aspect of this track. And then the woodwinds, uh, you know, I think Wyatt and I actually were discussing before the episode about he was telling me how if you look at your, this is for the box set holders who have that early box set, there's some incorrectly labeled stuff in there about saxophones but really it's just a bunch of clarinets and you know that's what's cool about pet sounds there's a lot of woodwinds all the woodwinds yeah so um i don't know it's a pretty magical track it's got a little bit of like a like a like a like what he originally intended a a childlike feel to it and to me this is a track that definitely is really kind of similar to the sound he would go for with smile. So I think it's kind of cool that he was doing this in 65, a cup, a year and a half or so before he was getting into the smile sound. So his head was already going that way, you know? Yeah. It's a really great track. And I wish I could have heard the original vision for this song in my childhood, even though Brian told Tony that the lyrics were terrible. He wouldn't even, he wouldn't even, sing them for him he just sang him the melody what a melody huh it's incredible uh but we're getting ahead of ourselves let's talk about uh the rest of this tracking session they actually did an overdub on the same day doubling the harpsichord grand piano and guitar tracks so that's why those instruments are so prominent and they also kind of have that shimmer and twinkle quality to it so really great track Really phenomenal playing by the Wrecking Crew, as always. And um, the track would lay dormant for a long time, as you guys know, along with songs like Sloop John B and Pet Sounds. This track would uh, be sitting around until Tony Asher came over to Brian's house and Brian had his own little playback uh, 
tape machine in his house. Tony says, on the first day of our collaboration, Brian played me the melody for a song he'd written called In My Childhood. If I remember correctly, the original melody sounded exactly the way it does on the album, and someone had already written the lyrics. Brian never played me the existing lyric. He played the instrumental track and said, I don't even want you to hear the lyric that's been written. He gave me a tape of the track, a cassette, and then went to the piano and made a second tape with him playing the melody and singing dummy lyrics. I took the two cassettes from that first day home and wrote the lyric to what became known as You Still Believe in Me, apart from Brian. He liked the lyric I came up with, and though we may have tinkered with a few lines here or there, it's the song you hear on the album. So they went into the studio, uh, Tony and Brian, while the Beach Boys were still on tour, and did the intro for the song. Brian and I were in the studio with nobody else except Chuck Britz, I think, the engineer. Brian decided he wanted to have those strings plucked. So I said to Brian, you sit at the keyboard and push down the notes and hold down the pedals, and I'll pluck those strings, because I know I can do that. You know? But of course, in the, when you look inside the piano, it's much more difficult than you think, because there are three strings for every note and so forth. So of course, I didn't get it right, and then he finally lost patience and said, you sit at the piano and I'll pluck the strings. Of course, he wasn't any better at it than I was. you know. And it took us the longest time to get that, just that simple, little phrase it was it really took like i don't know 45 minutes or something okay let's take it from the top tony um <laughs> letter a the sign go just play huh here it's on there's the bobby pins you've set it up real good you gonna give me a card you go in there <laughs> i'm carrying <laughs> carrying uh, what clips paper, paper clips, clips. string string of paper clips <clears throat> i see <laughs> julius left go so get the bill and say, Brian, uh, what are these paper clips? <laughs> that must have been you so funny. It was, all right. I was a little startled by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It could have been a great bit on that hip album. And you can see them doing it on the Love and Mercy movie. And I think they did a good job of, of showing how silly this is. But it's a great sound. It sounds um, kind of ethereal and, and otherworldly. And it's hard to really tell like what the actual instrument is. Because it sounds sort of like bells. It also sounds sort of like a, a harpsichord or like a plucked instrument. Really interesting. And uh, once they had the intro done and the Beach Boys had come back from tour... They went in on February 16th to do the vocals. Um, this time back at Western, you got all the Beach Boys here, including Bruce. The vocal arrangement is awesome. Like I was saying, has those cool kind of unison notes as well as as the, the bass part sung by Mike. And uh, the intro vocal was great, sung by Brian. It's really kind of uh, mysterious and eerie, just like the, the piano plucking. I think I was always impressed with how somebody could sing that line with one breath and all the, you know. Yeah, I was always impressed by that. But if you listen closely, you can hear Brian breathing and he breathes it. He doubles the track and he breathes at different points in each one so that it sounds continuous. 
Pretty cool. So a, a cool little trick there used by Brian. Um, and then a great lead vocal by Brian. Of course, uh, it was doubled, um, which you can only hear on the mono version because they, as often times dictated, they would have to bounce to mono and put a track on at the same time because they ran out of tracks to use. And at Western, they only had three tracks. So they had to bounce to mono with the double of the lead vocal. So on the stereo version, you can only hear Brian's singular vocal track. But we'll talk more about mono versus stereo in an upcoming episode. I know Jason has a lot to say about that. I know perfectly well I'm not where I should be. I've been very aware you've been patient with me. Brian, in 1996, explained that this song is a little boy's choir type song with me doing the soprano. Very, very spiritual. And after all I've done to you, how can it be? Brian said, you still believe in me was more of what I would call a man who would not be afraid to take off all his clothes and sing like a girl because he had feelings for people from that perspective. I was able to close my eyes and go into a world and sing a little more effeminately and more sweet, which allows a lot more love to come down through me. You know what I mean? It's like Kenny Rogers. There's an example of a guy who has a fairly masculine sounding voice. You still believe in me was quite the opposite. And after all I promised you so faithfully Paul McCartney said, I love that melody. That kills me. That melody. That's my favorite, I think. The way that's arranged, where it goes away very quietly. I was in the car the other night and I was telling the kids, saying, wait, wait, here it comes. And then it comes back and it's so beautiful right at the end. Comes surging back in these multicolored harmonies. Sends shivers up my spine. That's one of my favorite tracks. Brian says they would have taken out the bike horn and the bike bell, but it had already been tracked, obviously. So it was there, whether they liked it or not. And I think we all like it. I'm in. Brian also called You Still Believe in Me his favorite song on Pet Sounds. And I think it gets skipped over a lot um, in a lot of these Pet Sounds um, documentaries and stuff like that that you see. Um it's not one of the cornerstones of the album that they talk about, but I think it's wonderful. Um, like I was saying, the vocal arrangement is so awesome. The ending um, with all the vocals kind of doing a round almost, you know, with all six voices um, is just mesmerizing and hypnotizing. It's great. Um, kind of echoing the guitar lines, if you will. So smart. Um, still very childlike. Um, 
But man, the lyric is so good. We didn't even talk about that, man. The lyric is so, so, so good. I mean, I've analyzed these lyrics a lot because I can relate to them pretty heavily. Um, you know, there's some stuff in it about, you know, like in that second verse, it kind of where Tony Asher was coming from, kind of a thing that probably a lot of maybe more sensitive, probably every guy can relate to this, whether they want to admit to it or not. It's interesting that you say like the vocal that he sings is, you know, such a feminine leaning vocal, right? Well, in a way, these lyrics are very confessional and very uh, vulnerable, which is a thing that a lot of guys are, are they're not down with outwardly anyway. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, that line in there about, I try to be strong and sometimes I fail myself. I mean, that's a hard thing for anyone, guy or girl, to admit to. And coming from a guy that's a big time rich rock star in the 60s to sing about, you know, that's a pretty, pretty uh, cutting edge. And then, um, and that also, that line about I can't help how I act when I, you're not here with me, I think that's a really a thing that a lot of, you know, I can probably remember way back to when I was a lot younger and, and dating and things of that nature. And I remember you know, girls would get weirded out if a guy got kind of sensitive on them in that way. And I think that's always kind of been that way. I know that it's a, like I said, it's a thing that is kind of an interesting subject. So this song kind of hits that on the head, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of kind of really vulnerable confessional things, even though Brian may not have written the lyrics. I feel like Tony probably tailored these lyrics to its, uh, vocalist. Um, yeah. And, well, I mean, you know, their their lyrics um, would come out of discussions that they yeah, would have yeah, about, yeah, yeah, yeah. about life and relationships. And, and I feel like, you know, even though Brian didn't actually pen the lyrics, these were inspired by Brian. You know, they were inspired by his his story and his, you know, his struggles. And, and I think both of them shared a lot of common ground with that. And I think that's where all these songs kind of have tied together is because these guys kind of shared, right. you know, kind of a, kind of a, a mutual feeling towards a lot of different topics. And these are just kind of a, uh, another expression of that. And, and, you know, and the other thing, you know, going back to, I mean, definitely. Um, I mean, this is, I, I guess what I was getting at with what I was saying was that this is a great example of an incredible lyricist really getting in the head of its, of its partner. Um, I think the best collaborations where you think about, you know, Brian and Tony here or Brian with Gary Usher, you know, um, just seriously great team and Brian and Mike too, you know, it's interesting if you look at all the different co-authors he worked with and Van Dyke Parks, they're all different aspects of Brian and those different co-writers brought out different sides of his personality. You know, you ever think about that? Um, That's cool. I, yeah. I sort of have, I guess I, I haven't really compared all of the collaborators against each other. They're, they're all so different, you know, they're also different, but they're also, if you think about, and if you've seen interviews with Brian and you, and then you think about his history and his backstory, I mean, they're all reflective of him. And I feel like, yeah. I feel like that's a thing, you know, 
Um, that's the best collaborations. And also, you know, like it's, I guess, cause it's popular right now. There's a movie out about, you know, Elton John and, and Bernie Toppin, you know, from what I understand, they had a really good relationship and Elton was able to put, you know, Bernie's lyrics or whatever into life and make them feel, you know, make people feel those lyrics. That's why those songs were so big. I think it's the same with Brian's music. You know, he just had a, the collaboration that he shared with all his different co-authors really reflected what was not only inside him musically, but I mean, inside his real personality, that's how he's letting people get to know him. There's a big difference between what Brian did and what the Beatles did. I think the Beatles obviously, you know, probably had more influence and were more important and all that stuff that we've debated on and on. But you know, Bob Dylan challenged John Lennon in the early 60s or mid 60s to put more of himself into the songs and stop trying to cater to his audience so much. Um, and I don't ever know. I think maybe early on Brian was catering to the audience, but I think even in those moments, like with Surfer Girl or, you know, any of that stuff, there was still a lot of Brian in all of that stuff. And that was probably a direct reflection of how he worked with his co writers. So I don't know. That's just the thing I've thought about a bunch of times. Um, well, I think, you know, <laughs> you know, thinking about all the different collaborators, I think one of the reasons that, um, that this album is so, I guess, different in, in a lyrical form is because I think it's the first time that Brian was really working with someone who was kind of on his level as far as emotionally. Yeah. Um, I think they both had a lot of internal feelings about love and relationships and um, they were both more on the melancholy side. Um, whereas, you know, with Mike Love, he was more Mr. Positivity and, and fight, 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 um, which works awesome as well. And then Van Dyke Parks was more on the, you know, esoteric, uh, yeah, esoteric and, uh, you know, ambiguous and poetic side. And then, you know, Roger Christian was more, you know, geared towards like, you know, and Gary Usher, you know, we're, we're, we're more geared towards, you know, what's hip, what, what are the kids like? And there was no limit to that for them. It got a little personal with Gary. But it got a little personal, but that was also just, I think, you know. From hanging out. Um, yeah. And, and there's a lot of Brian and all of that. Um, but I think, you know, he really connected with Tony because Tony was such a, you know, kind of a laid back guy who wasn't in the rock and roll scene who had a lot to say um, in the same vein that Brian had. Um, and musically, the stuff Brian was doing really vibed with, with Tony. And Tony said it was some of the best music he'd ever heard or even could imagine hearing. Um, so it was a great collaboration, and it, and it really could have kept going. It's, it's, uh, we'll talk about all, of, all the songs they wrote together, but um, this one is really special. And, and, and I, I wanted to mention one more thing about the, about the vocal, but you know, the last line of the song where Brian just says, I want to cry, you know, it's just, it's just so vulnerable and, and personal. And it's, you know, after all these huge harmonies, it's just Brian by himself. And then you've got Mike doing the bass line an octave lower, um, which is also amazing. It's just a, it's great, great. a great Mike part. And um, then when everybody comes in all together, like Paul McCartney was saying, it's just, it sends shivers up your spine. It's just unreal. And then it just kind of, it's just the sea of harmonies. Um, I mean, that's, a, way, I mean, that's almost like a, that's like, a, like, a, that's like, that's what happens when you cry. 
you know? Yeah, it's you true, got, man. It's just, he's just unleashing <laughs> get, all this emotion. It's like one little bit, then another little bit, and then bam, you know? And I think, yeah. I, I, I have a feeling that was intentional. Well, I also think, you know, talking about this was a reflection of Brian, even though Brian didn't write it. I think Brian, you know, obviously dealt with these emotions and this this fear of losing Marilyn. I mean, it drove him uh, in a lot of these songs and um, it was mostly because of him and like things that he did. And he was just not a very good husband. Um, he was experimenting with drugs so much that he was just uh, failing to you know, complete his daily tasks as a human being. Like Tony said, he was an amateur human being, but a a brilliant musician. Um, And that's really hard for someone like Marilyn, who was still only, what, 18 years old and was trying to, you know, kind of keep their house in order. Um, And, you know, Brian had to hire um, Marilyn's sister, Diane, to be his personal secretary. And it's just like, it was just kind of a lot for for everybody to to deal with um and i know at one point marilyn and him got into a big fight and she moved out um she came back obviously but and this is still very early they'd only been married for a little over a year so um i think part of that was reflected in this lyric because you know brian was dealing with those things with marilyn and and having to ask for forgiveness a lot and you know realizing that he was doing some stupid stuff. And, and uh, I have a great quote from Marilyn here. Um, she says, he knew that he was not a good husband and that I was lonely and really didn't get much back from him. And he made me cry all the time. It was like there wasn't much of a relationship. The only way we related was musically. I could always sing the parts he needed me to. I understood and I could hear and I could sing. So it's really sad to hear that. Um, I know Brian loved Marilyn a lot and has, you know, sung her praises so many times and they had, you know, two beautiful children together and they made a lot of great music together, but they definitely struggled at times and hopefully he was able to to get forgiveness from Marilyn and show his appreciation for her. Um so yeah, I give this song a six out of ten. What? No, I'm just kidding. It's a ten out of ten. <laughs> um it's a ten out of ten. It's it's absolutely stone cold 10 i mean yeah <laughs> 10 out of 10 it's really hard not to give this a 10 it's no question there's it's, no it's question great. man it's a 10 out of 10 it's one of the best songs ever written it is on the same level as wouldn't it be nice god only knows you know i guess i'm dumb please let me wonder any you know name a song man tell me a song better than this i i, I dare you Listen to this song and tell me there's better music out there by any artist. I dare you.
I want to talk about two strange things. <laughs> okay. So first of all, if you listen to the more recent Pet Sounds box set that came out, there's a live version from 1993. <laughs> yes. But what's crazy is they play the original intro over yeah. the stereo or you know, used like a, a, a loop or something live, which is it's pretty cool. But when that DX7 hits, it's all over, you know, um, that's not really my beef. So here's my beef. As I was, you know, getting ready for our episode today, I just cracked open Spotify and just burned down every version of the song on there and then pulled up my personal library and listened to some outtakes and stuff like that. But man, I wasn't paying attention and that Royal Philharmonic Orchestra version came on. Oh, God. That is, I wasn't even going to bring this up. So look, I'm bringing it up because here's the deal. And 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 I think, were we doing the podcast when this thing originally came out? Or right, yeah, it right? came out a year ago. Okay, all right, cool. Well, I didn't say anything about it then, I guess. So here's the deal. And and if people listening want to be mad, that's cool. I'm ready. Um, I, I'm going to use very frank language here. Uh I heard that and I was like, man, that is an insane pile of crap. It's so bad. <laughs> it's just so bad, people. You guys out there that bought that, you guys out there that paid money for this, you should, I'm kind of bummed at you, is what I'm saying, because you enabled this. <laughs> it's so bad. It's like, it's like a desk, it's like taking, you know, one of Van Gogh's paintings and like putting like, you know, uh, putting it in a really bad frame um i don't know i just i heard it come up and i was like man they've auto-tuned brian and they've like completely like neutered the instruments that they overdubbed on top of it and it's just like man i'd rather mike love re-record it and hear that over that because that is just a terrible bastardization of a great thing yeah anyway I'm with you there. I wasn't going to bring it up because I'm trying to, you know, focus on all the positive things here on this on this song, but well, you well, are right. Well, I, I couldn't resist it, man, because yeah. I love this song so much and I love Pet Sound so much and I have a lot of respect for that recording and I just heard that and I was like, man, that's soul killing. It's and, and, and you know they did it to Buddy Holly's music, and they've done it to Elvis, and the car they did it to the Carpenters records. People, the Carpenters records are as sweet and as saccharine as you could ever want, and they're perfect. Why? Why make them that? I don't get it. So somebody needs to write me an email and tell me why you like that, and figure out and 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 let me understand the idiocy of that. Well. I agree with you and, you know, not to spend too much time on it, but one of the reasons why it's such a bad idea and it's so poorly executed is because, yes, they had to auto-tune Brian on the verses, but the reason they had to do that is because the original recording is slightly off speed and it's not completely locked into like the modern day tuning of A440. So instead of just shifting the whole recording, you know, which is easy to do, Instead of just shifting it to the right, you know, just a few cents, you know, to the right pitch, they auto-tune Brian's lead vocal. And then when the harmonies come in, they're out of tune. 
It makes no sense at all. Like it's the absolute worst way to deal with that problem. So Brian sounds strange now because you've auto-tuned him. And then when the harmonies come in, they sound like they can't sing right because they're slightly out of tune. So that just blows me away that they would miss such a critical, you know, such a easy problem to fix, you know, but they just did it the complete wrong way. As the millennials say in the current stratosphere of the internet, it's a real garbage fire. In the parlance of our times. That's right. That's right. Well, I hate to leave you on that. So we're going to end with a uh, fantastic version of this song, which I know Jason will agree with me. It's the Beach Boys in Concert 1973 version yes. of this song, where Al sings lead, and they actually did it in the key of C. They actually moved it up. Al, Al, Al crushing and dude it is so good it has like a country feel to it you know I mean like that was that was with their vibe man god it was so good man like I listened yeah. to this a couple days ago just yeah doing my research for the show because I hadn't listened to it in a little while and man yeah Al sounds incredible and this is completely just live from the board there's no touching up on Al on this he just sounds great and a- analog analog synth on the top too oh yeah God, it's so good. I know perfectly well I'm not where I should be. I've been very aware you've been patient with me. What a great song, man. What a great what a great lyric. What a great collaboration. You know, we've got another great collaboration to talk about next week, which is a song called Hang On to Your Ego, uh, which some of you may know as I Know There's an Answer. So we're going to get into that next time. Um, we're going to be gone on tour for about two weeks or so. Um, so... It'll probably be the first week of July when we get back. So uh, look for it around then. Um, check us out on the web at sailonpodcast.com and for our tour dates, sailonsounds.com. We've got a great Facebook group. If you aren't in the Facebook group, please come check it out. It's a great place to meet Beach Boys fans and continue the discussion. There's a link in the show notes. Um, As always, the music that you hear on our bumpers is done by Will C at willcmusic.com. And I want to thank everybody again for listening and supporting the show. I want to thank Jason for being here. And being grumpy. And I want to just say it's going to be great to see you guys next time and talk more Beach Boys. Um, We're going to go get a Mai Tai. And we'll see you guys real soon. Sail on, sailors.
and that Royal Philharmonic Orchestra version came on. Philharmonic, 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 Philharmonic. 